0: Do you have any Christmas traditions? That's a question I've been asking a lot of people this past week. It's a question I love to ask around this time of year. I'll be asking it probably for another week or so. Um, I'm interested in everyone's approach to this Christmas season. What what would you do as a kid? What what do you do as an adult? We have a number of traditions in my household from carving out time to go and look at tacky Christmas light displays, to uh, reading through the same book together uh, this time of year, to refusing to allow any Christmas music to be played outside of the month of December. It all has to stay inside this month. I'll tell you a secret, don't um, don't tell my children, but every time December the 1st rolls around and we start to allow Christmas music to be played on the radio in the home or in the car, uh, I, I remember how much I love it, so I reconsider that policy of just keeping Christmas music inside the month of December. I, I love embarrassing my children, especially in stores, by singing Christmas carols out loud. Um, so, and, and, and part of the reason is because these, these Christmas carols that we sing and have sung even together this morning, so often they, they tightly compact rich theology. And just to a, a few words and phrases, uh, th- think about what we sung this morning. In, in Angels from the Realms of Glory, we sang this phrase God with man is now residing. That's the doctrine of the Incarnation in seven words. Uh, we, we sang similarly in Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. Uh, we sang, Christ our God to earth descended. In, uh, in angels we have heard on high, we sang, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Think about that, a babe who is a king. The, the 19th century preacher from London, Charles Spurgeon, uh, once said that a very singular thing this is, that Jesus Christ was said to have been born a king. Very few have ever been born king. Men are born princes, but they are seldom born kings. The moment that he came on earth, he was a king. His heart beat royally, and his pulse beat an imperial measure, and his blood flowed a kingly current. He was born a king. If you you notice in your bulletin, we'll conclude the service with that song, The First Noel. And no, that's not a misspelling or a misprint of uh, the... The, the song, it's actually the English spelling of the word Noel. The French spelling is N O E L. The final verse of the first Noel, we'll sing this. Uh, then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord, who hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. It's an amazing verse. In four brief lines, it reminds us of the doctrine of God's sovereignty, of the doctrine of the creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, and of the doctrine of the atonement. Christmas carols, they can really pack a punch. And they call us to stand in awe and sing in adoration of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful tradition to sing these carols at this time of year. And it's my prayer that even as we've been singing these carols, experiencing it out and about our life in this world, that they will inform some of our thinking even about Luke chapter 2 this morning as we think about the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's my hope that as we study Luke 2, that our adoration of Him and for Him will lead us all with one accord to sing praises to our Heavenly Lord. Let's dive into God's Word together. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so, to Luke chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 857. 857. Having that text open will help you to, to follow along. Now, as you may recall, Luke, he's a physician. He's a ministerial companion of the Apostle Paul. And he is writing this gospel. His gospel is written a mere 30 years or less after the events that it's recording here. And this gospel, which means this good announcement, this good news, is basically a biography of Jesus. Luke's goal in this gospel, to use his own words, is found perhaps there in Luke chapter 1, verses 77 and 78, where Luke wants to give knowledge of salvation to God's people and forgiveness of their sins. Now, this, this goal, this aim of Luke's gospel reminds us that it's part of a larger story. It's part of the story of the, the whole Bible, right? That from the beginning, that God created the world and all that is in it. But man sinned and rebelled against him and was then under curse and condemnation. And the goal of the Bible is to see God redeem his people, to save them out from under that curse and condemnation. And so Luke is announcing to us that this one who's going to save us out from under our sins and the curse of the law, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke is introducing us to Jesus. This is what we get to think about this morning. And last week, as we unpacked Luke 1, we, we were reminded that Luke, he's writing a faithful, a reliable word about God's purpose to bless his people, especially in the forgiveness of sins. Luke 1 told us that, uh, that the Savior of sinners was going to be born, and Luke 2 tells us that he was born. That the Savior was born. And as a whole, Luke chapter 2, we're especially going to look at verses 1 to 40 this morning. As a whole, these verses, they they disclose the arrival of Jesus. The announcement of his birth and his adoration. And these are the three parts of our text. The Christ arrives, that's verses 1 to 7. The Christ is announced, verses 8 to 21. And the Christ is adored, verses 22 to 40. And these three parts, they join in harmony. And what we should hear in their harmony is this, that Christ has come to save us, so we should come and adore him. Christ has come to save us, so we should come and adore him. That's the message of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 40. And I pray that as we unpack these verses, that we might come and adore the Christ who came to save you from your sins. I pray that you would rejoice with the angels and the shepherds. pray that you would treasure Christ like Mary. Pray that you would see like Simeon and worship like Anna. Let's begin to take a closer look at the message that Christ has come so that we might come and adore him. Let's look at our first point, that Christ arrives, which we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Follow along as I read Luke 2, 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, these verses, they tell us that the Christ has arrived, and he's arrived in Bethlehem. Luke tells us that a decree was sent out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this would have reminded Luke's first readers that Caesars had great power. They had the power to command people to return to their hometowns for a census. Now imagine if the president had the power to tell each and every one of us to go back to our hometowns and wait for a governmental official to come and register us for a census. Think about how much instability that would usher into your life, how much chaos would ensue in this country. Caesar Augustus, he upended so many people's lives with such a simple decree. His power was great, but it was not ultimate. This decree, it forced Joseph and Mary to leave everything behind in Nazareth, And move to Bethlehem. And as we see there in verse 7, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Which means house of bread. And how appropriate it is that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. Bethlehem was also the city of David, as verse 4 tells us. And, And at one level we might say to ourselves that the Caesar really does have great power and control. But here's the thing. He's not the one who's ultimately in control. God is in control. The Old Testament promised That God, he would send his Savior and King. His Savior and King would be born in Bethlehem. Listen to what the prophet Micah says. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. The decree came from the hand of Caesar. But it was God who moved his heart so that God's prior decree, that the Savior, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem, would be fulfilled. Christian, draw some comfort from this reality. The Caesars of this world, they can issue decree after decree after decree. But remember that our God has issued an eternal decree. God has determined the end from the beginning. God is working all things according to his good pleasure. He's working all things out for our good and for his glory. So, while the Caesars of this earth issue decree after decree after decree, let us determine simply to serve our God and to do what He has decreed. There is no safer approach to life than to trust in God and to do His will. And if He can orchestrate all of the events of all creation and all history to make sure that His Son and our Messiah is born in Bethlehem, He is certainly preserving and governing all things in our lives too. He's working all things together for our good. And we can entrust our hearts and our lives to him. Notice there in verse 4 that Luke, he carefully underscores Jesus' royal lineage. Verse 4, it contains the fourth and fifth mention of David's name in this book. And Luke, he's going to continue throughout the whole of his gospel to connect Jesus to David. He's going to remind us that Jesus is the promised Davidic king of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, as we thought about last week. And who would have thought that the long-awaited Davidic king would be born and placed in a manger, a feeding trough, for animals? We tend to think of this manger scene as taking place in something like a barn, but that's not quite right. The, the room where Jesus was born was certainly intended as a place for keeping animals. But it was probably more, likely, more than likely attached to a home, maybe even the, the bottom floor of a home. The floor was likely cold, hard, stone, and since animals were kept there, it was probably dirty. Jesus was laid in a manger, a feeding trough. And, and when we sing these songs that mention the, the manger or the, the stable, the point is not to recount the dirty details of Christ's birth. It's to remind us that God condescended, that he took on flesh, that he, that he came and he lived among us, that he was born in a low condition. That he lived a lowly life identifying with lowly sinners like you and me. This is what our God has done for us. He's come to identify with us and live among us. And it should encourage our hearts. We should stand in awe of His humility and love toward us. The Christ, the Savior of those laid low by sin, He's arrived. His arrival was planned and orchestrated by God, foretold by prophets, and announced by angels. And it was passed on by shepherds. So let's turn and consider our our second point. Uh, The Christ is announced. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 2. for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Well, these verses, they really have two major movements. The the first movement comes with the angels announcing to the shepherds that the Christ... Has arrived. That's in verses 8 to 15. And then the, the second announcement of the angels, it, it, it moves the shepherds to go and see the Christ as well as to, to tell Joseph and Mary what they had seen and heard. See that in verses 16 to 20. And these verses, they conclude with the announcement of the child's name there in verse 21. Now, as we, as we step back and consider the angels' announcement that's really unfolded for us there Uh, in verses 8 to 15, it's important for us to remember that they tell us what the Christ's arrival means and how we should respond. The angel give the earth uh, heaven's perspective on Christ's birth. And as with other angelic announcements in the book of, of Luke, fear falls upon the angel's audience. And his arrival is followed by this exhortation to fear not. For the arrival of the child is nothing short of good news. And notice too that the angel he understands this good news to be great joy for all the people. See that in verse ten. And here, Luke is keeping his worldwide perspective concerning this child. The arrival of this child is not good—not just good news for the Jewish people, but also good news for all the people, for people all over the earth. What is it about the arrival of this child that is good news? Who is he? What what makes him so special? The angel, tells us there in verse 11 that he is the Savior. He is the one who has come to secure the forgiveness of sins that was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 78. The angel also tells us that he is Christ the Lord. Literally, he is the Christ Lord. He's the Messiah Lord. And here we're coming to see from God's perspective that Caesar is not the ultimate Lord. You know, during that day and age, Caesars would call themselves gods and And lords, But what the angel from heaven is revealing is that things are not always as they seem. It's not the one on the throne who is Lord, but the one in the manger who is the Lord. And we're also coming to see that this baby is the Messiah, which is to say he's the Christ, as verse 11 says. He's God's anointed. This has background in the Old Testament. That word Christ refers to God's anointed ones, particularly connected to God's promised king in Psalm 2. This child has been anointed and commissioned by God to accomplish and offer salvation for all people, for people all over the world. And it's at this announcement that God's Christ has arrived. Suddenly we move from one angel to an army of angels there in verse 13. That's what the concept heavenly host means. It means heaven's army. This is a dramatic kind of advance in the narrative. The heavenly army, they issue heaven's battle cry. God has come to make peace. That is good news for those who are at war with God through sin. The war between God and man is going to come to an end. Peace is proclaimed because the the Prince of Peace, the the Messiah, as Isaiah 9, verse 6 calls him, has arrived. The heavenly army is announcing the King of Heaven and Earth has arrived. And yet, we must look carefully at that language there in verse 14. Peace will not be extended to absolutely everyone on the earth. No, peace will be extended to those people with whom God is pleased. We've already learned from Luke's gospel that God's mercy is for those who fear him. Luke chapter 1 verse 50. Luke is beginning to confront us with the reality that we are going to have to form an opinion about this child. Will we believe the angelic announcement that he's the Savior... Will we believe that he's God's Christ Lord and King? What do you think of this message about Jesus? Better yet, what do you think of Jesus? Is he your savior? Do do you recognize that you need saving? That you're enslaved to sin and destined to bear the punishment for it, apart from God's mercy. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he living, or are, are you living under his rule? Or are you living under your own rule, deciding your own ethics, your own way of life? Are you at war with God? Living according to your own way brings you into war with God. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against God. We've all been at war with God. So the question is, are you ready to make peace with God? In this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still the dear christ enters in are you ready to be his subject and servant he is willing to have you as your and he will be your savior and lord will you receive him will he enter in will you make peace with god today notice that the very next thing that happens is that joseph and mary are greeted with this news, the news that the Christ, the Savior and Lord has arrived. The the shepherds take the angels' announcement to Mary and Joseph, and there's this already kind of this, this passing on of the good news taking place in the Gospel of Luke, this good news about this child. We've already seen that John the Baptist is in some ways proclaiming the Christ from the womb, and now we're seeing shepherds take the news to Mary and Joseph. Prophets can proclaim the news about Jesus, angels can, and so can lowly and poor shepherds. Everyone who receives Jesus Christ is commissioned to retell the wonders of His love. And in fact, retelling the wonders of God's love is a telltale sign that we have received Him as our King. So is treasuring this very news about Jesus. Don't you love verse 19? Well everyone's filled with wonder and amazement, we're told about Mary there in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. See, Mary's collecting this information, these details about Jesus and about who He is, and she is treasuring them. He is her Savior. He is her Christ. He is her Lord, and she's meditating on these things in her heart. Do you ever ponder, Christian? Do you ever stop to ponder your Savior, who He is? Do you ever stop to meditate and contemplate the things that God has told us about the Lord Jesus? You contemplate Christ and His character, you lingered over the truth that in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that he personally and perfectly and perpetually kept the law where you have personally and perpetually broken it have you meditated on the fact that he has fully satisfied the justice of God against your sins have you meditated on the fact that he has secured your justification your right standing before God through his resurrection from the grave Have you thought about that He so loves you that He intercedes for you even now? You are on His heart. Have you pondered these precious truths about Christ in your own heart? Mary's response to the shepherds there in verse 19, it shows us how we should respond to this news about Jesus. We should treasure in our hearts the news that He's the promised Savior and King from heaven. But the shepherds, they show us something too, I think they show us how we should respond to this announcement as well. We should join them in glorifying God and praising God for keeping His promises to send us His Christ, our Savior and our King. While Mary glorified God, perhaps privately pondering these things in her heart, it's maybe a sense we could see these shepherds, there possibly making this praise public. At least in concept, we know that we're really not to choose one or the other, right? We're not to choose just a private faith in Jesus. We're to have personal faith in the Lord Jesus, but also to make that faith Public, We praise God publicly, certainly in our our corporate worship service. So consider others inviting to hear your public praise of God as they stand by you and sing, and and you sing the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. you know, on Wednesday night, I challenged our community group to invite two people to the Christmas Eve service. Maybe try considering something so risky in this day and age as inviting others to come and hear the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ in a corporate gathering such as this. Take that... uh, that postcard provided in your, your bulletin and hand it to a friend and say, join me for worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ on Thursday night. You could glorify God in another public way as well. You could allow your private meditations on the glories of Christ in your personal devotions to spill over into your conversations in public. So as you as you read your Bible and pray each day, ask yourself, what does this passage teach me about Jesus? And, and ask yourself, how might this help my unbelieving friend or family member or coworker? What what would be useful for them to know about Jesus from this passage? And then shoehorn that into your conversation. That's right, just force it in there. Uh, you can tell, you know, this morning I was reading my Bible that this amazing announcement that angels, an army of angels, came to proclaim that God was willing to make peace on earth. What do you think about that? Do you have peace with God? Are you at peace with God? Bring that into your conversation and show your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make your praise public like the shepherds did. These verses, they began with an angelic announcement and they conclude with the announcement of the child's name there in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 21 announces that Jesus is our righteous Savior and King. Something as mundane as His circumcision on the eighth day is important to our salvation. You see, the Old Testament law required that every Jewish boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And we see that in Genesis chapter 17, verse 11 and 12, and in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 13, every aspect of the law had to be kept in Jesus' life in order for Him to save His people out from under the curse of of the law. And I think it's why, this is why at this point that we get the announcement of Jesus' name. I don't know if you notice this in the, the narrative of Luke, but the child's name was not announced uh, um, by a human until Luke chapter 2 verse 21. It was given initially in Luke chapter 1 verse 31, but we don't hear the name of the Christ again until this point, until verse 21. And I, I keep thinking that the reason why we, we, we get Jesus' name at this point in the narrative is one, because His name means uh, salvation is from the Lord. Uh, salvation is, is from the Lord. He is salvation that comes. His name means the Lord saves. And, and we're reminded of this, this connection of the law and Jesus' name, the Lord saves, because that's what we need to be saved from. We have not kept the law. And we need to be saved from the condemnation the law pours out upon us. And Jesus has come. To save us from the curse of the law. And this is why his name, the announcement of his name, is so sweet to the ears of those who trust him. Because you know that the announcement of his name means that the salvation of the Lord has come. It's come in this child. And this is precisely what Simeon and Anna recognize about Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. This is why they adore him, because salvation is found in him. This is what we turn to think about now in our third point. Christ is adored. Follow along now as I read Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. Luke 2, 22 to 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That is, As it is written, the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And... And his father and his mother marvel at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... They were turned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Well, these events, they all take place in and around Jerusalem. In them, we see Simeon and Anna adore Jesus, as well as God the Father. Verses 22 to 24 explain for us the two reasons why Joseph and Mary and Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem. The first... Was to make purification for Mary. And the second was to dedicate Jesus to the Lord, to to set him apart. The ceremony for Mary's purification has its background in the law of Moses in Leviticus 12, and the ceremony for Jesus' dedication has its background in Exodus 13. Verse 24 reveals to us that Joseph and Mary could not afford to offer the sacrifices that the wealthy in Israel could offer. Rather, they appeared to be part of the poorer population in Israel. And still, they were rich in faith and faithfulness to God. And so was Simeon. We're told that he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Wouldn't you want that to be a description of your life, living before the Lord? If you're ever looking for a scripture passage to pray for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ... Then pray this, pray Luke 2, 25. Pray that your brothers and sisters in Christ would be righteous and devout. Pray that they would wait in faith for the Lord Jesus to come again and for the Holy Spirit to be upon them. Part of what makes Simeon the the right person to express his adoration of Jesus is that he has been waiting for this moment. His life was lived with a sense of anticipation, a kind of faith-filled waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that phrase, the the consolation of Israel, it has an Old Testament background. In short, it was a a promise of comfort from God to his people in exile. It, It was perhaps most clearly seen in the prophet Isaiah's work. We read about God promising to extend comfort to his people. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. This is what we hear. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. little later, Isaiah says in Isaiah 49, 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And then Isaiah 51, verse 3, we hear the Lord's comfort again. We hear this, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving, the voice of song. And I could keep going. Isaiah continues to extend comfort in Isaiah 57 and Isaiah 61. But the important thing to remember is that Isaiah was looking into the future. And seeing a day when the hardship, the warfare that was the exile itself. When it was over. And if this is true, it should lead us to ask. Why was Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel? After all, didn't Cyrus... Didn't that king end the exile and return the people of Israel back to their homeland? Wasn't Simeon standing in the temple at Jerusalem? Yes, he was. And yes, Cyrus did end the physical exile. But there was a more fundamental exile that had taken place. God's people had been exiled from God's presence for their sin. Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. They were exiled from the garden. There was no way back into God's presence because of their sin. You see, it wouldn't be until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that God would speak his final word of comfort to his people. The final word of comfort through which would come the forgiveness of sins. And this final word of comfort would come through God's Christ. There are clearly some unique things that have been happening in Simeon's life. You'll notice in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. That's not normal. That's that's unique. And from the descriptions of the Holy Spirit's work in the scriptures, we know that He does not go around offering indiscriminate revelation about kind of random events and subjects in a person's life. No, in John chapter 16, verse 14, we learn that the specific work of the Holy Spirit is to direct God's people to God's Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to direct God's people to God's Christ. Christ. The, the Spirit's work is Christ-focused. And, and that's what's happening here, isn't it? The Holy Spirit is directing one of God's people to God's Christ. The time has come. And notice what the Holy Spirit inspires, reveals to us as he inspires Simeon to speak over Jesus. And, and remember that he is holding Jesus in his arms when he says these things. It's an incredibly moving scene. Simeon acknowledges the Lord's faithfulness. Here is the fulfillment of your promises, Lord God. And he confesses he can die in peace. The only way that you can die in peace is if you're holding on to the Lord's Christ. Simon, he's holding Jesus in his arms and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Prince Jesus, he is God's salvation. Salvation is found in no one else. Have you looked on Jesus in this way? Is he your only hope in life and in death? And notice that Simeon says that God's salvation has been presented, prepared in the presence of all peoples. God has not been going about this work of salvation in secret. He's been revealing his saving purposes from the beginning. He revealed his saving purposes to Adam and Eve right there in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 when he promised... That a son would come and crush the head of the serpent and defeat sin. God revealed to Abraham that his offspring would serve as a blessing to the nations. To Egypt and the nations of the world, God revealed that he's a saving God. Saving his people from slavery in Egypt. He can give what he promised. He revealed to David that one day a son from David's line would sit on his throne. And rule the world in glory and honor and power. The prophets proclaimed the coming of this child. They declared that this child would be the savior of the world, or as Simeon puts it there in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. You recognize that those two people groups, right? They make up the whole people groups of the world, Jews, and then there's Gentiles, which is everybody who's not Jewish. Jesus is the savior of all. He's the savior of the world. And Simeon is, of course, alluding to what we read to earlier from Isaiah chapter 49, verse six. God speaking to his servant says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Jesus is the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. He's the Savior of all peoples and he's been presented in the sight of the world. Do you hear what God promised Isaiah? Do you see what Simeon is saying? Jesus is the one who will be the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. He will be the one to end the exile and bring God's people back into God's presence. He is our salvation. And Joseph and Mary, they are awestruck. They're awestruck by Simeon's adoration. And Simeon gets personal there, doesn't he? In verse 34, Simeon turns to Mary and he effectively says, Your son Jesus, he's going to expose the hearts of many people. He will be their savior or he will be their judge. He he will be rejected. Or he'll be received. He is God's instrument of salvation. And God's instrument of judgment. Mary, you are going to see all of this unfold in Jesus' life. And as his mother, it will be cause for great pain. Simeon tells her it will be like a sword piercing your heart. We know from the end of Luke's gospel. Where the rejection of Jesus culminates. That Mary she would see her own son and savior crucified. What mother could bear that pain? And yet Simeon's words, they also throw light upon a crucial question for us. How will we respond to Jesus? Will we receive him or will we reject him? Will we adore him or will we be aggravated, agitated by him? We, We also need to understand that Jesus, that he, not just in that day, He evoked agitation or adoration. We need to recognize that Jesus continues to evoke adoration or agitation. The scriptures plainly teach that not all will honor Jesus. No, some will hate Jesus. There's a sense in which Jesus remains a divisive figure. Jesus even told his disciples that they would be hated for his name's sake. And Christian, I think that you need to be prepared for this. We live in a world that's hostile to Jesus. And you need to be prepared to honor him. Not all hostility will be communicated at the same level or in the same way we know some places around the globe our brothers and sisters in christ like in nigeria and iraq uh they're subject on christmas day or christmas eve they're subject often to bombings in their worship places and yet i stand amazed that they continue to gather there they know there's a real potential risk for them to die when they gather with god's people for worship and yet they turn up to honor the lord jesus christ now, we, in God's kindness, do not face that same kind of hostility, but we do sometimes face hostility for our gatherings. Just last Sunday, our uh, kind of musicians were having a, a jam session uh, down below, and after that jam session in the fellowship hall, I left the church building, I walked out, I was greeted by a couple who was walking by, and uh, the, the husband of this couple, they were walking their dog, he, he said to me, don't you think it's a really strange time to be doing church? To which I immediately replied, it's Always a great time to be doing church. And uh, his wife said, well, there you have it. And um, he said to me again, no, no, no. Don't you think it's a really strange time to be doing church? As if, right, I didn't understand the question the first time through. And his wife said, well, you have a great day. And she kind of moved him along. Well, that's a subtle form of hostility against obedience to the Lord Jesus, I think. And we need to recognize that that opposition is going to occur in our world. And we should not be offended by it. Or we should not be angered by it. We need to have humble and happy responses to that kind of hostility. And I think the only way that we can have a humble and happy response to hostility toward Jesus is if we adore him. Is if we recognize that in him we have the savior of our sins. Savior from our sins. But We, we need to recognize that we are not deserving of God's grace. And yet he has shown it to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all rebelled against God. And yet he has moved toward us in his one and only son. Fully God and fully man to live the life that we've not lived. a Life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus lived the whole of his life honoring God the Father. And yet he laid it down for rebellious people like you and me. People who have hated God in our hearts. He has moved toward us. And he said, I will pay that punishment. I'll pay the wages of your sin." And he did that on the cross, bearing excruciating pain in his body and torment in his heart and soul as he endured the wrath of God on the cross. And yet, three days later, God raised him from the grave, vindicating him, proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And that we might come to receive him as our Lord and King as we turn from our sins and place our faith in him. We are all undeserving of God's grace. And we ought to stand in adoration of the Christ who has come to save us from our sins. And Christian, as we conclude, I want to encourage you. Consider living life like Simeon and Anna. I want to encourage all of us to consider living life like Simeon and Anna. We, we turn from our sins and we place our faith in the Lord Jesus and we adore him all throughout the whole course of our lives. We need to recognize that Christ has arrived, that he was announced and that he was adored. And that our God means for us to adore Him as well. We live life longing for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Savior and King. Let us spend our lives pursuing righteousness and devotion to our Savior and God and King. Let us spend our lives thanking Him. Praising, adoring, telling others about Him and the goodness of His love. We are waiting for His return in faith. Remember that Simeon and Anna... They were waiting for his appearing, and he appeared. He will appear again. He has come, and he will come again. We're reminded of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. It tells us this about the second coming. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Jesus came personally the first time. He will personally come again. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Christ, he has come to save us from sin and death. So let us come and adore him. Christ, he will come again to rescue us finally from sin and death. And so let us adore him and anxiously await his coming.